Hey, everybody, and welcome, after something of a false start, to the third live session for There and Back Again, exploring Tolkien's Middle-earth. I am Alistair Stevens, and this week we are moving on to the second chapter of The Hobbit Roast Mutton, in which we will journey forth from the Shire, or at least journey forth from the hill. The exact geography in this part of the story is perhaps a little difficult to pin down, though we will revisit it early on in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf is going to come to the rescue. Thorin and company are going to experience some marked and significant good fortune. And most importantly, Bilbo is going to undergo his very first burglarious misadventure. I am here today in beautiful Oklahoma City. This is going to be my new recording setup for at least the foreseeable future. I am in the studio of Common Room Radio, who have kindly invited me here for the live sessions. Uh, I apologize in advance if I miss any discussion that is happening today, either in the YouTube chat, which I can see right here, or on Twitter, which I'm just now realizing I cannot see conveniently. There it is. Hey, look, it's Twitter. Or in the Discord chat room, if you support StoryWonk on Patreon and you have been blessed by the Discord fairies and you've actually had your account synced up with the StoryWonk server, then you can head on over to Discord and I can see your thoughts right there in the There and Back Again chat room. We have a fair amount of material to cover in this week's session. This is an odd chapter. This is something of a stumbling block, and I realized only this week how many people are thrown out of the pages of The Hobbit by specifically the misadventure with the trolls. It can seem cartoonish. It can seem a little exaggerated and heightened, even by the standards of the first chapter of The Hobbit, and I think that that is intentional. So it is my intent this week, as it is every week, to look a little more closely at the text and hopefully to allow you to enjoy this story more than you otherwise would. Let's see what we can do with that in mind, shall we? As I rearrange my screens and get ready to go. Okay, let's um, let's move into this. Yes, I'm keeping track. As people are asking me how I keep track of three different discussions, poorly is apparently the answer, but I do the best that I can. Yes, good. All right. Actually, Discord is very quiet today. I don't think there's anyone in the Discord chat room hanging out, but I haven't been using it previously, so that is not generally where the conversation takes place, but it's available there as an avenue. Good. Kate says that she's always loved this chapter. So much fun. One of the interesting things about this particular chapter is that all of the Tolkien children, and I don't think that we've discussed this yet, but while Tolkien was writing The Hobbit, he was, at least in part, writing it specifically for his children as they were growing up. And all of the Tolkien children, at one point or another, described Roast Mutton as their favorite chapter in the entire book. And it is, I think, for good reason, well regarded by those who enjoy the fairy tale side of the story. We're going to be talking a lot about fairy tales in this week's discussion. This is a spirit, a, a tone, a texture that the Hobbit itself is going to leave behind as we move into the back half specifically as we move into the third act of The Hobbit. This is a tone that The Lord of the Rings is completely unfamiliar with. We are not going to have this kind of adventure by the time we move into The Lord of the Rings. So that can be somewhat discordant for those who are familiar with the more grandiose, more adult, more, more dramatic tone of The Lord of the Rings or the last act of The Hobbit. But for those of us who signed up for an adventure, for those of us who signed up for a children's story, 
there are things I think to enjoy within this chapter. And certainly there are ways in which we can integrate the events of this chapter with the broader landscape of the Hobbit as a whole. And ultimately with the Lord of the Rings too, though there are crucial incompatibilities, which we'll discuss as we move forward. Yes. Good. Um, let's, uh, let's get into it then. Oh, before we get into that though, there are a couple of topics that I want to pick up from the discussion that we had last week. The first of which is Thorin Oakenshield. I have had my problems with Thorin Oakenshield over the years. He is not an immediately likable character. He comes into Bilbo's house and we don't get the, the ease and comfort of a typical introduction. We don't get a playful introduction. And he is kept apart from the dwarves when they are being playful and boisterous with Bilbo. The dwarves, the rest of the dwarves, I guess I should say, are presented as likable and comic and engaging. But Thorin is not. And I want to talk about exactly why that is and what the text is cueing us to understand, what is intentional within the text and what I think is unintentional within the text. The most important element when we're thinking about Thorin Oakenshield is that he is both of the royal line of the kingdom of Erebor, that is the Lonely Mountain. He is the grandfather of the king who was in, in place when Smaug attacked the Lonely Mountain, uh, the grandson, excuse me, of the king who was in place when Smaug attacked the Lonely Mountain. And more importantly, he is in effect the king in exile of Durin's folk. He is the closest thing to a king that the dwarves have right now, that these dwarves have right now. And kings in the work of Tolkien are simply special. And that is in part because Tolkien was British and in part because Tolkien was a medievalist. He had a perspective on authority, on greatness, which can be a little unpalatable, can be a little discordant, can be a little unwelcome to modern eyes, particularly, I think, to the eyes of the modern American reader. Most of the people I heard from who had a problem with Thorin Oakenshield, I think, were American. And that's because in America, we don't observe those kinds of social lines and structures and hierarchies. They are not encoded into the, the social discourse in the United States in the way that they are in Britain, in the way that they are simply in older countries, I think. The idea of the great king is fundamental to Tolkien. The idea of the great person, that great people are able to accomplish great deeds, but are also simply different. They are out with the bounds of normal society and structure. I don't want to talk too fully on this point. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole right now, because of course we are going to have many, many more opportunities to talk about hierarchy and, and social structure when we move into the Lord of the Rings. The greatness of kings and the relative lack of consequence of, of the small folk is going to be completely pivotal when we move into the Lord of the Rings and, and will be, I should say, a continuing theme as we move through the pages of The Hobbit too. So, on the one hand, when we're introduced to Thorin Oakenshield, and when we're thinking about Thorin Oakenshield, it is, it is reflective of his position in his society, that he is not affable, that he is not friendly, that he is not charming. He is a great dwarf, capital G, capital D, and ought to be respected as such. But there is also something else happening with Thorin, which I think is intentional within the frame of the story. I think we are supposed to be 
a little skeptical of him at this point. We talked last time about the Misty Mountains Cold song. We talked about this account of the dwarves' life in the Lonely Mountain and the coming of the great dragon Smaug. And we talked about the ways in which dwarven culture almost foreshadowed the coming of the dragon, that the dwarves had begun to turn inward, that they had begun to turn away from the company of their peers and their neighbors. They had turned away from their community. They had turned away from the larger world. They had moved deeper beneath the mountain. They had begun to keep their songs and their treasures secret. And that seems to, certainly by implication in the lines of the poem, that seems to have foreshadowed the coming of Smaug and the devastation that the dragon wrought. That is not unintentional. As I discussed last week, that is key, I think, in our understanding of the dragon sickness. I think we are supposed to be a little skeptical of Thorin, even this early in the book. I think we are supposed to see him as great and serious-minded and, and capable of, of leadership and justice, yes. But when we look at the specifics of his plan, when we look at the way that he deals with Bilbo, even the way that he deals with Gandalf, and certainly when we look at the complete lack of response that he demonstrates to the news of his grandfather, well, not the news of his grandfather, I suppose he knew about, he knew about his grandfather being devoured by the dragon, but the news of his father, when Gandalf tells him that he found his father in the lair of the necromancer, we see from Thorin little to no response. Now, we might credit that to the tone of the piece. We don't really want Thorin to be wrecked with grief and dismay and guilt here. But at the same time, to fail to acknowledge it completely does create the possibility that Thorin is thinking less about the glory of his people and homeland and more about the treasure. Now, we'll be able to counterpoint this discussion rather beautifully when we get to the movie adaptations of The Hobbit, which put a great stress on this, this discussion of home, the, the, the image, the symbol of home and hearth and what that means. One of the most interesting things that the movie adaptation of The Hobbit does is to more fully counterpoint the mountain at one extreme and the hill at the other extreme. We have this explicit, within the text of the movie, connection between these two homes and what they represent. Now, that is present in the text of the book, too, but not as fully, not as richly, perhaps not as flatly. I know that there are some people who are left somewhat cold by the discussion of home and hearth in the movie adaptation of The Hobbit, and I can't entirely blame you for that, if, if that is your response. But for me, that works really rather beautifully, and it gives us a much greater delta of motivation for Thorin and for the other dwarves. Here in the book, well, in fact, we'll get into our discussion of, of uh, Thorin's motivation as we discuss the contract that he has left behind for Bilbo. Let's see what has been happening here. I think we do have some life here in the Discord chat. Yes, Kate says the troll scene is mostly to get Bilbo used to being a burglar. No, well, we'll discuss exactly how Bilbo interacts with his burglar persona when we get to the trolls. But yes, I think there is definitely something there. In the early part of The Lord of the Rings, Frodo will look back on this encounter that Bilbo has with the stone trolls, and he will describe this as Bilbo's first successful adventure, which is... I think by pretty much any metric, wildly untrue, but we'll talk a little about the ways in which Bilbo is successful or unsuccessful 
as we move through that part of the chapter. But yes, I think we're, we're certainly connecting Bilbo to his burglarious persona as we move through this chapter. Yes. Good. Good. Carl says, when the dragon follows or finds the dwarves, is he attracted by their gold or by their greed and isolationalism? That is, is a very astute question. Um, I am inclined to say that it is the latter, that it is the greed within the hearts of dwarves, the greed between, uh, within the hearts of these dwarves specifically, I should say, not to slander the entire race, the greed within the hearts of these dwarves that draws the dragon forth. It's not the accumulation of gold and wealth. It's the falling into the dragon's sickness. And there's a possibility as we track this story, as we move forward through this story, that, that we can change our understanding slightly of, of that phrase, dragon sickness, that it is not it is not a sickness like unto that of dragons. It does not render one like a dragon in, in uh, acquisitiveness, in, in jealousy, but rather it is the sickness which afflicts dragons in addition to those who hoard their jewels and gems and gold. We'll talk about that much, much more when we get all the way to the Lonely Mountain at the end of the book. Yes. And Kate asks, are we supposed to look at dragon sickness as a literal illness? That is a topic that we will definitely discuss. I, I don't want to answer that question just yet, but yes. Yes, <laughs> that's a fascinating question. Good. Yes. Okay. The other point that I want to alight upon, um, the other point that I want to alight upon before we get into our discussion of this week's chapter is, in fact, let me share the... Uh, let me share the controversial passage from last week's reading here as we discuss the origins of golf. This is the quote from last week's reading. If you have ever seen a dragon in a pinch, you will realize that this was only poetical exaggeration applied to any hobbit, even to old Took's great-granduncle Bullroarer, who was so huge for a hobbit that he could ride a horse. He charged the ranks of the goblins of Mount Graham in the, in the Battle of the Green Fields and knocked their king Gothimble's head clean off with a wooden club. It sailed a hundred yards through the air and went down a rabbit hole. And in this way, the battle was won and the game of golf was invented at the same moment. I had a half dozen emails and there was some discussion, I think, on the forum too about this particular passage. There are those out there who dislike this passage intensely because it feels as though it is a misaligned and perhaps even poorly intended joke, which I think in part it is, though I would argue that this is primarily intended as a joke, as, as a moment of comedy. Rather, there are two things happening here, which I find very interesting, which I think actually provide important substance to the story of The Hobbit. The first is simply that appearance of depth. And this is something for which Tolkien is renowned. Arguably, this is the thing for which Tolkien, among people who have not yet read Tolkien, is most renowned. This is the illusion of depth. Tolkien is more than willing to throw out these incidental references, these incidental details, and allow them simply to stand within the frame of the text. They make the reader feel as though the world is wider and broader than they had previously thought. We will see this kind of thing all the way through The Hobbit, all the way through The Lord of the Rings, all the way through Tolkien's extended legendarium. The vague reference to the unseen thing, which represents, which, which, alludes to a broad landscape of stories beyond, 
that is a vital part of Tolkien creating an immersive secondary creation. His world feels as full as it does, in part because he's willing to let these stories simply stand. So we have the old Took's great-granduncle Bullroarer, who was so huge for a hobbit he could ride a horse. And it's almost difficult to envision what that looks like, given the, the, the physical characteristics of a hobbit, such as we've been introduced to them. He charged the ranks of the goblins of Mount Graham in the Battle of the Green Fields and knocked their king, Gothimble's head, clean off with a wooden club. That's a pretty great story. We don't know what any of those things mean. We don't know what Mount Graham is. We don't know what the Battle of the Green Fields was. We don't know about the King Golfimble. We don't, at this point, know about goblins. And yet all of this reference, all of this illusion, creates a sense that the world is that much larger. Now, it accomplishes one other thing, which is specifically, explicitly intentional within the works of Tolkien. One of the things that Tolkien sought to accomplish when he sat down to begin to write his Legendarium, this is back prior to The Hobbit when he was working on stories that, that would later become a part of the Silmarillion, later become a part of the established canon of The Lord of the Rings and ultimately The Hobbit too. One of the things that he sought to accomplish was the creation of a mythological framework for England, for Britain in part, but for England specifically. England does not have the kind of mythical framework that Tolkien respected so fully and completely in other cultures. It doesn't have an Anglo-Saxon mythological framework all of its own or a Norse mythological framework all of its own. It doesn't have that kind of, of narrative tradition. And Tolkien wanted explicitly to create that. That is why there is such a profound connection between fragments of his stories and the real world in which we find ourselves, that at some points in his creative process, the Silmarillion was supposed to be the deep history of our world, that The Hobbit was supposed to take place in the deep history of our world, even The Lord of the Rings too, in part. He kind of moved away and, and moved back. His approach to that was was somewhat inconsistent as he changed his perspective on his own work. But one of the things that he sought to do within that frame is to do the thing that myths do more often than anything else, which is simply to explain. This is the how the leopard got its spots version of the origins of golf. This is the explanation for why there are rainbows or why there is a morning star or why there are tides. Myths tell us stories in order to explain, in order to, to narrativize the emergence of our culture and our society on the one hand, or those phenomena associated with the natural world on the other. I think that this is a specific attempt to mythologize the origins of golf. It's not terribly successful, I think it's fair to say. I think that Tonally, it is perhaps a little a little unhappy sitting alongside the other accounts that we're getting in this part of the chapter. But I do think that there is an underlying intent that it is at least important to note and to regard. How do you guys feel about uh, about the golf thing? Oh, Kate says, there was an archaeological hoax in Britain of an ancient man and all his stuff, including a cricket bat. The golf thing sounds like a wink at that story. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
Librarian Val says, love the golf comment, but sure, it's an exaggeration. Yes, I'm sure it is too. It doesn't seem to be the case that this is literally true, but at the same time, it is absolutely the kind of myth that would be created both within the secondary world, within the fictional frame, but also within the primary world. This is the kind of story that hobbits would tell to each other, but it is also the kind of story that we would tell to each other about hobbits, if that distinction makes sense. Yeah. Yes, we're, we're calling out here in the uh, in the YouTube chat here that uh, that England does in fact have King Arthur. That there are there are um, a few fragments of that mythological framework that I was describing. King Arthur would be one, Robin Hood would be another, but those are mostly borrowed. King Arthur inhabits and inherits a a strictly Celtic tradition and his place within the bounds of, of modern English identity, particularly what was to Tolkien modern English identity, you know, back in the early years of the 20th century, would have been very different. So there are mythical characters within that, 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 that shared English culture, but there isn't that cohesive framework. There isn't a, a creation myth, an origin story, if you like, for England in the way that there are origin stories and creation myths for other cultures in other parts of the world. So while there are elements that I think Tolkien would have respected and, and would have sought to employ, they're not necessarily comprehensive enough to, to accomplish the goal that he set out to accomplish. Yeah. Yes. As Nikki says, Britain followed, uh, Britain borrowed its fairy tales from other countries. Yes. Good. Um, yeah. Good. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, I think I'm, I'm keeping up with all of the comments here. Good. <laughs> Librarian Val says it's quite a, it's quite a task, excuse me, to take on for oneself to create a mythological frame for a framework for one's country. It absolutely is. Yes, this was not a task that he undertook lightly, and uh, it is responsible, I think, for for the breadth of Tolkien's work as well as the subtlety. And, and should we ever move on to discuss the Silmarillion, that is where we will see these ideas presented at their, at their most specific and raw form, I think. Though there are fragments still that endure in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to the poem, Arendelle Was a Mariner, one of my absolute favorites. Good. Okay, let's get into then this week's reading. Since I have spent half an hour, a full half hour talking about last week's reading, let's get into this week's reading. We begin Roast Mutton with Bilbo waking, as if from a dream, as if perhaps from a nightmare, discovering that the dwarves have abandoned his tiny home and that he has been left behind. And he begins immediately to putter around. He begins immediately to slip back into his quiet, uninterrupted Baggins life. He cleans, he has breakfast, he is enjoying a second breakfast, we're told, when Gandalf returns and reminds him that no, in fact, this uh, this pledge of adventure, this quest that he has undertaken, or this quest that has perhaps undertaken him, is still in full effect, and that a letter was left for him by Thorin and company, and this is the letter left by Thorin. Let me call up the slide here. Thorin and company to burglar Bilbo, greeting. For your hospitality, our sincerest thanks, and for your offer of professional assistance, our grateful acceptance. Terms. Cash on delivery, up to and not exceeding one-fourteenth of total profits, if any. All traveling expenses guaranteed in any event. Funeral expenses to be defrayed by us or our representatives, if occasion arises and the matter is not otherwise arranged for. 
Thinking it unnecessary to disturb your esteemed repose, we have proceeded in advance to make requisite preparations and shall await your respected person at the Green Dragon Inn Bywater at 11 a.m. sharp. Trusting that you will be punctual, we have the honor to remain yours deeply, Thorin and company. This is oftentimes, I think, regarded as proof of Thorin's stuffy and conventional nature, that there is something about Thorin which is actually reflected in in these moments, in this kind of, of ostentatious formality, almost. Certainly, we see the, the line about funeral expenses to be somewhat significant. We see the line uh, about the, the one-fourteenth of total profits to be somewhat significant, too. But there are some curious elements here, which make me wonder about Thorin's intent, and certainly perhaps most strikingly, about Thorin's tone. First off, for your hospitality, our sincerest thanks, and for your offer of professional assistance, our, our grateful acceptance. Is this sarcastic? I think this is sarcastic. I don't think for a moment that Thorin is being sincere here. And there's certainly no suggestion that this was written by one of the other dwarves other than Thorin. And given Thorin's critical and, and snide remarks to Bilbo in the previous chapter, it's entirely possible, this in fact would be my assertion, that this is a partly playful, partly outright sarcastic response to Bilbo's desire for clear and plain speech the previous evening. Remember how upset Thorin was when, when Bilbo asks for the details of their endeavor? And he says, well, you've heard us talk about this. You've heard our song. What is it that you want from us? And Bilbo puts on his business-like manner, the manner that he usually reserves for people who owe him money. To my eyes, to my reading, to my interpretation of this text, this is Thorin poking at Bilbo. This is Thorin being... Mm, Playful, perhaps, but also possibly rather snide at Bilbo. That's particularly evident in the second paragraph. Thinking it unnecessary to disturb your esteemed repose, we have proceeded in advance to make, requ uh, to make requisite preparations and shall await your respected person at the Green Dragon Inn by water at 11 a.m. sharp. This is overblown, even for conventional formality and courtesy. But there are two a couple of fascinating details in this letter. And perhaps the most important can be found there in the, the what third sentence of that first paragraph, terms cash on delivery up to and not exceeding one fourteenth of total profits, if any. What does cash on delivery mean in this context? What is Bilbo supposed to do when they get to the Lonely Mountain? Is he supposed to go in through the secret door on the side of the mountain and armload by armload, pocket by pocket, remove the entire treasure hoard of the great dragon Smaug and return it to Thorin? How are they supposed to accomplish this goal? What is it that they are setting out to do? And this, I, I think, is, is completely intentional. Again, I think that we are supposed to understand at this point in the story, or, or hmm, let me rephrase that a little more carefully. I think that adult readers are supposed to understand at this point in the story that there is something slightly misaligned about the dwarves' quest. Their desire to return to the Lonely Mountain and claim their treasure is clearly passionate, is, is clearly something to which they are, are fully committed. 
but it doesn't seem as though it's been thought out terribly well. And we'll have the opportunity to explore that in a little more depth before the end of today's reading, too. Yeah. Librarian Val says, trying to figure out Gandalf's purpose, keep Bilbo moving forward and later keep them out of trouble. He comes and goes a lot. He sure does come and go a lot, doesn't he? We're going to talk about that, too, when we arrive at the, at the Trolls. And Kate says, Thorin's note is a direct response to Bilbo's questions from the night before, right? Yes, certainly that's my reading. That's how I interpret it. And I don't... I don't hate that because even if it is snide, even if we read it as as critical and and condescending in the the poor and and mean spirited and modern sense of that word, rather than the truer older sense of that word, even if we read it as somewhat patronizing from Thorin to Bilbo, it still speaks to a playfulness and a wit from Thorin that we have not previously seen. So I'm I'm happy for Thorin to be in this regard a little playful though I do end up always feeling bad for Bilbo, of course. Now, we've learned that... Um, oh, let me catch up on the, the chat here, True, too. Yes, yes. Leslie Skiba says, Living in the UK, I've learned that the more flowery the language, the more angry or disgusted the writer is. Yes, that kind of excessive courtesy and formality can oftentimes be an indicator of, of somewhat less genuinely respectful feelings. Yeah. John says, It's clear that Thorin sees Bilbo as a commoner, and this attitude will continue until Bilbo proves that he can be thought of as more. I think that's really interesting, John. I think you're right that Bilbo's relationship with Thorin will change as we move through the book, but I'm not sure that Thorin would ever... Hmm. I'm not sure that Thorin will ever stop seeing Bilbo as a commoner, because Bilbo is, by Thorin's standards, while Bilbo is an esteemed hobbit, we're told. He is a commoner. He is not of noble lineage, and Thorin is. And that line is, I think, within the works of Tolkien, a real and pressing line. We're going to have the opportunity to talk about this in great depth when we start talking about Frodo and Sam, of course, because there are readers of The Lord of the Rings who are challenged, who are made uncomfortable, who, who dislike the relationship between Frodo and Sam because that social hierarchy is so coded in the fundamental aspects of their relationship. And I think there's a similar kind of element happening here. I don't think that Thorin will ever stop looking at Bilbo as a commoner, but he will at least appreciate Bilbo as a, as a, a person, as a hobbit, as a commoner. He will appreciate his virtues. Yeah. Yes, uh, Ramalosh. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but that's rather, that's rather beautiful. Is there anything in the legends about dwarf-hobbit relations? Um... We're told that there are three tribes of hobbits, and we'll have the opportunity to to delve into this a little more fully when we arrive at the the uh, the opening material for the Lord of the Rings. But we're told that basically there are three communities of hobbits, one of which is more closely aligned with men, one of which is more closely aligned with elves, and one of which is more closely aligned with dwarves. But there isn't, it would seem, a great history of interaction, and nor should there be, because... Erebor, as we will see, is far on the other side of the Misty Mountains. So while dwarves are not unfamiliar, they're also not terribly commonplace, and it seems as though formalized, organized interactions between communities, between states, nations, I'm not sure how we would formalize that in the kind of um, anarchic governmental setup that we see in the Shire, the, the kind of formalized communication between dwarven communities and hobbit communities doesn't seem to be a terribly common thing, though, again, 
exactly what that would mean for a Hobbit community to even have that unified sense of presence, never mind the ability to the ability for one hobbit to speak formally on behalf of all of his fellows, that would be more complicated too. So I'm not entirely sure what the ongoing relationships are between the dwarves and the hobbits. Yes. Um, yes, we're talking about uh, Gandalf, the plot device here, says Chelsea. Yes. Gandalf comes and goes. Partly that is, I think, a hint toward that illusion of depth, that, that Gandalf is having other adventures. Things are taking place outside of the fictional frame. And we'll see many of those things as we move through the the... Uh, appendices of the Lord of the Rings and then into the adaptation of The Hobbit in, in movie form too, yeah. Uh, Alexandra says, Gandalf was so strategic about when he shows up to tell Bilbo to get a move on, waits until he has absolutely no time to think himself out of it and then, and this is a beautiful detail that it took me many readings to catch up with, then Gandalf shows up later with some tobacco and some some comforts of home for Bilbo. So I think you're entirely right, Alexandra. I think that, that Gandalf shows up at precisely the right moment. Had he shown up 10 minutes earlier, then Bilbo may have been able to talk himself out of it. Had he been there from the beginning of the morning, then Bilbo almost certainly would have come up with some excuse, or he would have taken himself off to, to the storage room and hidden himself behind the beer barrels again. I think that, that you're absolutely right. This is a very careful piece of strategy from, from Gandalf the wizard. Good. Good. Excellent. All right. Uh, let's move on then to the next slide and to actually Bilbo's departure from his home because waking to discover that he is wanted at, at Bywater in 10 minutes, this is how Bilbo begins his great adventure. That's how they all came to start, jogging off from the inn one fine morning. Oh, wait, this is not, in fact, the right slide. Did I skip a slide? <laughs> oh, I didn't take the slide. Okay. I guess I didn't take the slide. I thought that I had taken the slide. This is what I was talking about when I mentioned uh, technical difficulties. Let me cancel that slide. We'll get to that slide in just a moment. Because what I really wanted to talk about was the element of Bilbo's departure, which I find most interesting, that never again thereafter, until the end of his days, could he say how he find, found himself, excuse me, running down the road toward the Green Dragon Inn at Bywater. That is crucial. That is fundamental. Because Leaving his home is one thing. Being guided on the one hand by his Tukish impulse or on the other by his Baggins-ish impulse would have been sufficient. But we're explicitly told that he could never remember what it was that drove him forth from his home onto the long road into the wild blue yonder. He doesn't remember, he won't remember how his adventure began and what motivated that choice. Now, there are two possible explanations for this, and I'm not sure which is, which is more compelling. The first is that what we're seeing here is a synthesis of Bilbo's character. What we're seeing is a fully developed synthesis, just for an instant, between his Turkish impulse and his Baggins-ish impulse. Because on the one hand, the Turkish impulse wants to go on the walk, wants to have the small-scale, perhaps lowercase a, adventure, wants to journey and to walk and to see the world beyond the bounds of the Shire. On the other hand, his Baggins-ish impulse would presumably respect the contract and would respond to the formal language used by Thorin in his letter. So it's possible that those two impulses coincide for just a second, and that's enough to get him out of the door. But later in this chapter... We are going to talk about Bilbo's remarkable, singular luck. 
And later in the story, we're going to highlight that luck. We're going to make it very clear that the luck is textual, that it is not a, a band-aid applied to a hole in the plot, but rather is one of Bilbo's defining characteristics. He is lucky. He was hired for luck, and he embodies luck. But if we're going to attribute luck to Bilbo, if we're going to attribute good fortune to Bilbo, then we have to question where that good fortune and luck comes from. We have to begin to question here the theological underpinnings of Tolkien's secondary creation. Why is he lucky? What kind of luck is it? From where is this luck derived? And as we've discussed before, when talking about Tolkien, as we discussed back in the very first session when we were looking at on fairy stories, there is a mechanism in Tolkien's secondary creation that allows us to engage with events of, of enormous good fortune without writing them off as cheap, without writing them off as mere narrative contrivances. Rather, we get to enjoy them, we get to engage with them as moments of eucatastrophe. And as I said back when we were discussing on fairy stories, eucatastrophe does not simply mean luck. What it means is grace. What it means is the unsought for, uh, the unsought and unlooked for blessing that comes in a moment of utter ruin and disaster. That when driven to the point of collapse, when you cannot expect hope, hope will find you. And that is a necessary part of Tolkien's world building. That's a necessary part of his secondary creation because he believed ultimately in the presence and the grace of God, that he, he saw these intercessions of grace, these intercessions of hope as a natural part of the world, of the, the moral and, and, and fatalistic, I suppose, uh, framework of the world. So when we think of eucatastrophe, we're thinking effectively of the intercession of divine grace. But eucatastrophe is marked by the utter collapse into ruin. It's marked by the catastrophe. Things fall apart. Is it possible to read Bilbo's flight from his home as, as a moment wherein things fell apart? Is this a continuation of the catastrophe of the previous evening? Or is this something else? Is this a pre-eucatastrophic moment? Is this a necessary step so that goodness can occur down the road, so that grace can be granted down the road? Is it necessary for Bilbo to take the step, and is his free will removed from him in this moment? Or is his service to a greater power, and we must be very careful about how we talk about great powers and greater powers within the frame of Tolkien's secondary creation, is there something here that drives Bilbo forward? Is that why he cannot remember? And is, if you are inclined to take the more conspiratorial approach here, is it Gandalf? Does Gandalf simply slap Bilbo with some magic mojo that gets him out of the door and down the road, knowing that once he has begun to take these steps, he will not turn back? I'm not terribly comfortable with that explanation, but I have seen it argued. And, and it's, not, hmm, it's not trivial to disprove simply by relying on text. So, yes. Um, Aaron says, not terribly familiar with the Catholic take on providence and free will dialect. Bilbo's luck equals predestination. Um, 
that is a far larger topic, I think, than we have time to to do adequate service to here. Um, predestination is very tricky. Um, hmm. We'll, we'll talk a little more about the, the notion of predestination next week when we get to Rivendell, because that's when we're going to engage with greater purpose with prophecy. So let's put a pin in, in our discussion of predestination now, because we will be given an opportunity to, to analyze that a little more carefully as we get to uh, potentially at least actual prophecy. Yeah, good. Um, Carla asks, but why is 13 an unlucky number in Middle Earth? And the answer, I guess, would be because 13 is traditionally regarded as an unlucky number here. At this point in his storytelling, Tolkien was still trying to build that, that mythic foundation for our own modern world. There was supposed to be a continuity of experience. So he would see this, I think, as either a reflection of his audience's understanding that 13 is an inherently unlucky number, or... That, that there is a common root to that belief that informs both Bilbo and Thorin and Gandalf's belief that 13 is unlucky and also our more modern belief that 13 is unlucky. We don't, I believe, I don't think that we ever get a mythic explanation for the unluckiness of the number 13 anywhere in Tolkien's work, but it is possible that it survives in notes or a letter or a fragment somewhere. Um, but I would, I would see that certainly as as a part of Tolkien's desire to anchor the events of The Hobbit in the, the, the antediluvian past of our real world. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Leslie Skipa says drink because I said put a pin in it. Yes, good. Eucatastrophe uh, and serendipity are the same, says Chelsea, or does Eucatastrophe have a somewhat more religious connotation? Yes, I would say also that Eucatastrophe is generally more extreme, that... that that even in eucatastrophe, we see the falling apart of things. That serendipity can alight upon a, a moment, upon an event, upon a person, even when things are going rather well. It is possible to have good fortune, even when the rest of your fortune is not necessarily the worst. But eucatastrophe requires, I think, requires the, the falling apart of one's plan, the dissolution almost of one's hope. You must be driven to the, the the very brink of despair before the resolution, the intercession of grace is truly eucatastrophic. We'll have a couple of opportunities to look very closely at, at moments of stark eucatastrophe. All of our discussion of eucatastrophe to this point has been foreshadowing. We haven't yet arrived at a moment of genuine and, and stark eucatastrophe, but when we do, we'll be able to discuss exactly how it works thematically, theologically, but also how it works narratively, also how we are left in the aftermath of eucatastrophe, how we feel comforted by the catharsis of eucatastrophe. We'll see how that works out. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly it is true, I think, that eucatastrophe implies, yes, a higher power, implies a, a, a greater force, um, that may be, it may be argued, the force of destiny or the force of good fortune or the force of more local powers, but certainly it's difficult to, to think of the framework surrounding Tolkien's secondary creation and not see here, in effect, the will of Iluvatar, the will of, of God in that sense. Certainly that's how it, it works to my eyes. There are others out there who have, have written extensively on Eucatastrophe. We'll have the opportunity to talk about differing perspectives as we get to it. Yes. Yes. Good. Um, 
Excellent. Let's uh, push on then to the slide that I actually started reading, which is the beginning of the journey itself. After Bilbo uh, meets up with the dwarves, we get this brief exchange. That's how they all came to start, jogging off from the inn one fine morning just before May on laden ponies. And Bilbo was wearing a dark green hood, a little weather-stained, and a dark green cloak borrowed from Dwalin. They were too large for him, and he looked rather comic. What his father Bungo would have thought of him, I daren't think. His only comfort was he couldn't be mistaken for a dwarf, as he had no beard. They had not been riding very long when up came Gandalf, very splendid on a white horse. He had brought a lot of pocket handkerchiefs and Bilbo's pipe and tobacco. So after that, the party went along very merrily, and they told stories and sang songs as they rode forward all day, except, of course, when they stopped for meals. These didn't come quite as often as Bilbo would have liked them, but still he began to feel that adventures were not so bad after all. Here we have the perfect contrast between Bilbo's Took and Baggins' side. And again, to, to return to our discussion last week, to return to the discussion that we must have every time we discuss Took and Baggins, Bilbo is not caught between these two sides of his personality. He is instead the product of both of these sides of his personality. He is not and nor should he, going to resolve his personality entirely. He is not going to be, at the end of the story, 100% Took and 0% Baggins, and we should not want that for him, or vice versa. He is both Took and Baggins, and he mediates that space rather beautifully. And we see that here at the end of this passage, where he's coming to understand that perhaps adventures are not so bad. But this is not the adventure. This is to call back to the first chapter in the book, nothing more than his extended walk. This is nothing more than his, his favorite walk marked on the map in his hall in red ink. He's going forth, yes, but he's still carrying a walking stick rather than a sword. We'll get to that transition later in the chapter. So here we see his Baggins impulse represented, of course, by reference to his father, Bungo. What his father, Bungo, would have thought of him, I daren't think. Bungo as the most Baggins hobbit who has ever lived. But what would his mother think? What would the famous or fabulous Belladonna Took think of her son going forth into the world like this? Well, we don't know. But she would at least be comforted to know that Bilbo cannot be confused for a dwarf. Good. Let's uh, move straight into, oh, Librarian Val asks, dwarves have to have beards. What about the ladies, which I assume exist? There is no reference made. Well, I suppose there is a reference made. We do actually get one reference to Philian Kili's mother within the pages of The Hobbit. That is to Thorin's sister. Fili and Kili are Thorin's nephews and are therefore, by the way, the, the subsequent heirs to the throne of the Lonely Mountain. We'll discuss that a little bit when we get right to the end of the book because there are some, hmm, some complicated political shenanigans right there at the end of the book, which we'll address more directly. But yes, the question of dwarven womenfolk is an open one. Um, that's one of those topics that I feel like I should address in a little, a little uh, Silmarillion supplemental. I can maybe record a little lecture where I can talk about, I, I desperately want to talk about Alay and Yavanna. I want to talk about the creation of the dwarves specifically because I think it is, 
even though the Silmarillion would not be published until long after The Hobbit, long after The Lord of the Rings. The Silmarillion, for those of you who perhaps aren't aware of this, wasn't published until after Tolkien's death. It was published by his son Christopher um, and, and, and collated from his notes and from the final versions of as many stories as could be found. But the Silmarillion speaks directly to the creation of the dwarves, and that may well have been, in Tolkien's mind, a very present factor as he's writing this this fine comic troupe, as Bayorn will describe them later in the story. Yeah. Good. Um, good, good. Yes, Sabine asks, did not Gimli make a joke about Lady Dwarves having beards, or is that just in the movies? I believe that's just in the movies. I don't think that that joke exists in the original text, but I don't remember. Hmm. That is one of those moments where the, the movie has somewhat overshadowed in my memory the, the content of the original book. Yeah. Good. Excellent. All right. Let's keep pushing on because, um, <laughs> Leslie, you should probably drink now. We are running very late. And I know that that's everyone's favorite part of the drinking game because we have to talk about the dwarves' completely disastrous voyage through the countryside, about the disastrous beginning that they have to their adventure. We've got to get to the trolls is what we've got to do. We've got a lot of ground still to cover. But I want to talk first about, about tough travels. They decided in the end that they would have to camp where they were. They moved to a clump of trees, and though it was drier under them, the wind shook the rain off the leaves, and the drip, drip was most annoying. Also, the mischief seemed to have got into the fire. Dwarves can make a fire almost anywhere, out of almost anything, wind or no wind, but they could not do it that night. Not even Owen and Glowen, who were specially good at it. Then one of the ponies took fright at nothing and bolted. He got into the river before they could catch him, and before they could get him out again, Feely and Keely were nearly drowned, and all the baggage that he carried was washed away off him. Of course, it was mostly food, and there was mighty little left for supper, and less for breakfast. The dwarves here at this point may feel as though they are adventuresome, may feel even heroic from Bilbo's somewhat sheltered perspective. Here they are undertaking a quest. But at least in Bilbo's account, which we must never forget, that is what The Hobbit is, is an adaptation, an evolution of Bilbo's account of this adventure. In this version of the story, the dwarves are not so very different from Bilbo. They are ill-prepared and either un- or under-armed. They too are left hungry. And, and look at the stress in that second paragraph on the screen right now. This is a remarkable thing. He got into the, this is after the pony bolts. He got into the river before they could catch him and before they could get him out again, Feely and Killy were nearly drowned and all their baggage, all the baggage that he carried, excuse me, was washed away off him. Of course, it was mostly food and there was mighty little left for supper and less for breakfast. Let's not worry about Philly and Killy making it back to the bank. Let's pay as little attention as possible to the possible drowning of two of our dwarven company. Instead, let's focus on the fact that now we have no food. And that is certainly a testament to Bilbo's perspective. This is true, absolutely, of, of Bilbo's current priorities. But it's also, I think, in a broader sense, true of the of the general conduct of the company. I think that we're seeing a very poorly prepared group going forth. We discussed this back in the first chapter, of course, that it seems as though they did not bring ponies to Bilbo's house. It seems as though they did not bring weapons of any kind to Bilbo's house, but they did come elaborately prepared with musical instruments. And while it's possible that we can credit, you know, a flute tucked away inside Feely's coat, 
it does seem unlikely that there are actual cellos being lugged across the countryside by two of the dwarves. Even Thorin's golden harp, which he may well carry with him as a, a sign and a testament of his standing in the dwarvish community, and certainly we, we must be mindful of the references to harps in the Misty Mountains song. It is possible that he would carry that, but it seems wildly unlikely that the other dwarves would carry musical instruments and not weapons, not ponies, not baggage, not a means of recovering the immense hoard of treasure currently buried beneath the lonely mountain. We are ill-prepared, which compels us to ask why. Why are the dwarves framed in such incompetent terms. Why are they having so much trouble with what must be, considering that they have already, all of them, traveled at least once from the east of east all the way to the Shire? They have been traveling around all their lives, apparently. Despite that, they seem to be rather incompetent here at this stage in the adventure. Is this Bilbo's perspective? leavening dwarven experience, drawing the dwarves a little closer to him so that he himself is not quite so out of step with the community, with, with the party as a whole? Or is this Bilbo trying to make the dwarves more accessible by making them more comedic? If they had traveled out armed to the teeth, if they had traveled out with, with great foresight and, and into the jaws of danger, if, excuse me, if the adversity that they were facing here right at the very beginning of their journey was somehow foreshadowing for how difficult things would be later, this would be a much more grim tale. I wonder what the underlying intent is here. Certainly we'll get the opportunity to discuss this a little more. Yeah. Is it foreshadowing, asks Nikki? Are they relying too much on Gandalf and his burglar? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, certainly not his burglar at this point. Certainly not Bilbo at this point. Um, in fact, let's let's look at that exact point by pushing on to the next slide here. Um, because we, we have to acknowledge, too, the narrative contrivance here, that the dwarves have to suffer in order to motivate their detour off to investigate the fire in the forest. Yeah. Good. Oh, Kate says on Twitter, I like this as an explanation, the dwarves have become poorer and poorer since leaving Erebor. They may have hawked the instruments for the ponies. Yes, there is currently a very well-supplied secondhand music store in Hobbiton right now. Good. <laughs> oh, and Kay Clark asks, what if Bilbo let the pony go and is blaming the dwarves? Well, you can never trust someone who, uh, who has proven themselves an unreliable narrator. Oh, Carla is taking off. Carla, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoy the rest of the show, too. Let's take a look, then, at this, uh, this excerpt as we have seen the light of what will turn out to be a fire back from the road aways, and the dwarves, driven by hunger and, and cold and desperation, decide to investigate. Now it is the burglar's turn, they said, meaning Bilbo. You must go on and find out all about that light and what it is for and if it is all perfectly safe and canny, said Thorin to the hobbit. Now scuttle off and come back quick if all is well. If not, come back if you can. If you can't, hoot twice like a barn owl and once like a screech owl, and we will do what we can. Off Bilbo had to go before he could explain that he could not hoot even once like any kind of owl any more than fly like a bat. But at any rate, hobbits can move quietly in woods, absolutely quietly. They take a pride in it, and Bilbo had sniffed more than once at what he called all this dwarvish racket as they went along. 
though I don't suppose you or I would have noticed anything at all on a windy night, not if the whole cavalcade had passed two feet off. There's an interesting shift in the first paragraph here that I like rather a lot, because the intercession of the narrative voice tells us a great deal about not just what the hob uh, not just what the dwarves think of Bilbo, but also what Bilbo thinks of himself. Now it is the burglar's turn, they said, meaning Bilbo. Well, thank you for the clarification, narrative voice. I'm appreciative of it. Who else could they possibly mean? But it is so unlikely at this point in their adventure that Bilbo could be thought of as a burglar that the narrative voice itself, and, and I'll remind you of our previous discussion about the at least three authorial voices that we will encounter in the course of The Hobbit. Now it is the burglar's turn, they said, meaning Bilbo, makes it absolutely clear that Bilbo is at his least burglarious at this point. Then we switch to Thorin. You must go on and find out all about that light and what it is for and if it is all perfectly safe and canny, said Thorin to the Hobbit. Well, that's certainly the job for a stealthy individual, but not traditionally the job of a burglar. And at this point, we must begin to ask some questions about what is meant by burglar. We'll alight upon the notion of a legendary burglar and what a legendary burglar would or would not do in just a few minutes. It's also vital to note the detail here in the second paragraph. This calls back the idea that these stories take place within our own distant past, and that hobbits and dwarves and elves have retreated from man, that they have retreated from human spaces into the quieter spaces in the world. The idea that the hobbit can move stealthily and is therefore actually rather well suited to a role as burglar, that there is something innate to Bilbo's character that makes him potentially at least a viable burglar for this expedition, but also that though he is exceptional, even the dwarves would be all but silent to human ears. That we are large and brutish and oafish and move through the world with such noise and such calamity that we are blind to its true secrets, that we are disconnected from the natural world around us. That is, again, a key part of Tolkien's mythic aspect here. From here, um, yes, good, good. From here, we move into uh, the actual introduction to the trolls. I really do have to pick up the pace a little bit here. I am running very, very late indeed. Here, is our introduction to the trolls. Three very large persons sitting around a very large fire of beech logs. They were toasting mutton on long spits of wood and licking the gravy off their fingers. There was a fine, toothsome smell. Also, there was a barrel of good drink at hand, and they were drinking out of jugs. But they were trolls, obviously trolls. Even Bilbo, in spite of his sheltered life, could see that. From the great heavy faces of them and their size and the shape of their legs, not to mention their language, which was not drawing room fashion at all, at all. Mutton yesterday, mutton today, and blimey if it don't look like mutton again tomorrow, said one of the trolls. And in this introduction to the trolls, we must be reminded of that previous passage and the, as I said, lumpen and oafish way in which men make their way through the world. It is no coincidence that the trolls are given cockney accents, that the trolls are presented and named as though they are 
lower class people, as though they are, are lower class human beings, recognizable to the readers of The Hobbit when it was first published. One of the most interesting things about this passage is the way that we are introduced to the trolls themselves. We don't begin with an account of the trolls. In fact, we get almost the opposite of an account of the trolls. Three very large persons sitting around a very large fire of beech logs. So there are people here. There's nothing in that opening sentence that suggests to us that this should be frightening or that this should be in any way intimidating, either to us as readers or to Bilbo as, as a player in this scene. They were toasting mutton on long spits of wood and licking the gravy off their fingers. There was a fine, toothsome smell. Also, there was a barrel of good drink at hand and they were drinking out of jugs. Well, we've happened upon a party scene. We've happened upon a, a, a campfire surrounded by, by friendly and amiable fellows, all of whom are enjoying a great dinner. That's our introduction. We are drawn into the, the comfort, even the, the domesticity of this scene. But then we get the turn. But they were trolls, obviously trolls. And we don't get specific detail about what the trolls are or what the trolls look like. The great heavy faces of them, their size, the shape of their legs. Well, what does that mean? What image does that conjure up to you? This is one of the scenes, or one of the passages, I should say, in which The Hobbit is perhaps at its most successful as a narrative intended for children. Because here we are introduced to a scene of real peril and danger. Nothing here is, is bowdlerized. Nothing here is sanitized for the, the delicate sensibilities of the young. No, we're about to face three flesh-eating trolls. But our introduction to the scene is such that we are, we are drawn in in comfort. And then we hit the turn. This is not an immediately frightening prospect. If you have read The Lord of the Rings, and this is my biggest problem with this scene, and this is, I think, one of the ongoing conversations uh, which is most troubling about this scene. If you have read The Lord of the Rings, then this is a strange and almost borderline incompatible description of trolls. We are told at the very beginning of The Lord of the Rings that, quote, trolls were abroad no longer dull-witted but cunning, which is one of those descriptions from the Lord of the Rings, which works very well in the moment, but which doesn't actually seem to apply to anything that we meet later in the book. I don't think there is a single troll in, in the entire output of Tolkien that could be described as cunning. Rather, the trolls that we see later are immense and monstrous and powerful, more like giant orcs than they are like these stone trolls. So we get a clarification all the way in Appendix F of The Return of the King, that, that we get a, a clarification that this somewhat lackluster description, that, that the trolls have, have been abroad no longer dull-witted but cunning, that this has been retconned now. In Appendix F of The Return of the King, we are told, a troll race not seen, excuse me, a troll race not before seen appeared in southern Mirkwood and in the mountain borders of Mordor, Olog High, they were called in the black speech, that Sauron bred them none doubted, though from what stock was not known. So we are going to meet trolls later in this story, or later, I guess, in the sequel to the story, that have nothing to do with these trolls. There is not a textual incompatibility. But there is, I think, a tonal incompatibility. It is 
very difficult for me to reconcile these three working class Cockney trolls with the vision that we are given of life in Middle Earth. I'm curious about how trollish society works because there must presumably be a trollish society. There must be some kind of of community, some kind of possibly nomadic community of, of Cockney trolls somewhere far in the frozen north. We don't know for sure. But the tonality of this scene is problematic because the reference seems too specific and the threat seems, seems oddly incompatible. We are going to learn that the elves of Rivendell are concerned about these three trolls camping just off the road. And that seems like a difficult thing to reconcile, doesn't it? That seems like a difficult thing to, to place within its proper context, because I have trouble believing that the elves that we will meet even within the pages of The Hobbit, and my God, the elves that we will meet in The Lord of the Rings, could be in any way challenged or threatened or made uncomfortable by three trolls sitting by the side of the road, not so very far from the borders of the Shire. So what is happening in this chapter? What is happening throughout the rest of this chapter? We're going to talk about the talking person. We're going to talk about Gandalf's ventriloquism. And we're going to talk about the trolls being suddenly turned to stone. What is happening here? This is, for me, one of those moments in which Bilbo's narrative voice is most powerfully felt. That Bilbo has reframed his experience with these trolls, who I feel confident in saying are more like the trolls that we will meet later in The Lord of the Rings, that he has reframed this to make it more palatable for his intended audience, which is children. Because we must remember that in part, at least, Bilbo too was writing a child story. He was writing a story for young hobbit lads and lasses back in the Shire at least within the bounds of The Hobbit. That's one of the reasons that The Hobbit is generally recognized within its own fictional frame as more suitable for children than perhaps for adults. That's why we're given the quest of Erebor alternative version of this narrative in the appendices to The Lord of the Rings. So for me, for my reading, it seems as though Bilbo is trying to soften what is a much more frightening encounter and to make it more appropriate for his juvenile audience. There are a few times in the book when Bilbo's narrative impulse, his own act of tertiary creation, I suppose, given that he exists within a secondary world, therefore his, his narrative impulse is, is a, a tertiary creative impulse, and the world, the version of his story is, is a tertiary story. We're going to look at the Riddles in the Dark chapter, and we're going to look at Bilbo's experience with Gollum, and we are going to alight upon a few other details, too. Most notably, perhaps, the Stone Giants. When we reach the mountains, which we will do next week, possibly the week after, um, when we reach the mountains and we hit the Stone Giants, I will have some things to say. Um, but for me, this entire chapter reads like the fairy story version of Bilbo's real adventure. If we're going to in any way make this adventure compatible with The Lord of the Rings, compatible just with the rest of, of The Hobbit, we have to have a, a better sense of where the trolls fit in and what, what trollish culture looks like, if indeed there is such a thing as trollish culture. It seems to me that this works much better if the trolls are more like monsters and rather than chatting and, and possessing a talking purse, they are, in the reality of Bilbo's experience, much more dangerous. But in the account, they get to be softened and they get to be rendered in more fairy tale terms. 
Yeah. Silver Sue says on Twitter, yes, it was a surprise that the elves Gandalf Melt were f- met were fearful of the troll's presence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes, and we're talking, yes. Lab Girl says, whereas the trolls in Lord of the Rings are basically animals, it doesn't work at all. Yes, though I think we can argue, we can argue fairly confidently that there are multiple types of trolls even within Lord of the Rings too, but certainly that's fair. Yes, yes. Leslie Skipa says, is Quest of Erebor alternative facts? Leslie, you are my favorite. Um, Yeah, I guess arguably, no, The Hobbit or There and Back Again, uh, that is the alternative version. That is the the somewhat uh, skewed version. Certainly, it seems as though the version of the story that we get in The Quest of Erebor is more, let's say, objective, I suppose. Um, Though, yes, your mileage may vary in that particular regard. Yes. Yes. Oh, there are, there's some discussion here. Oh, Matt says, uh, was the notion of trolls turning to stone a Tolkien invention? Not sure I'd come across that before. No, actually, he's drawing upon some very interesting uh, Icelandic and Norse uh, traditions here. This is a, a Northern European version of trolls. And this is, the, the biographical detail here, I think, is is really interesting and curious. Through the childhood of Christopher Tolkien, um, who, who later went on to compile the Silmarillion and is basically now in charge of the Tolkien estate, a, a great mind and a great scholar all on his own, too, I should say. During his childhood, the Tolkien house was oftentimes populated by a string of Icelandic nannies and au pairs who would come through and share their stories, their folklore with the, with the Tolkiens, I guess. Um, and that seems to be if you believe the biographical detail here, that seems to be the point at which Tolkien became fascinated with this particular version of, of troll legend. So yes, apparently that was drawn from, from fairly ancient stories uh, from Iceland and, and Scandinavia. Yeah. Okay. Let's, um, yes, let's keep pushing on. Uh, we must, we must, now that we have introduced our trolls, we must look at Bilbo's actual to, uh, to burgle from them. To burgle them, I suppose, rather than to burgle from them. But here we go. A really first-class and legendary burglar would at this point have picked the troll's pockets. It is nearly always worthwhile if you can manage it. Pinched the very mutton off the spits, purloined the beer, and walked out without their noticing him. Others, more practical but with less professional pride, would have perhaps have stuck a dagger into each of them before they observed it. Then the night could have been spent cheerily. Bilbo knew it. He had read a good many things he had never seen or done. He was very much alarmed, as well as disgusted. He wished himself a hundred miles away, and yet, and yet, somehow he could not go straight back to Thorin and company empty-handed. We were talking earlier about our sense of what a burglar may be or may not be. And this is interesting because we get two differing perspectives here. In the first, we get something that is almost rakish. We get almost a, a Robin Hood swashbuckling kind of thief. A really first, a first class and legendary burglar, excuse me, would at this point have picked the troll's pockets, pinched the very mutton off the spits, prolonged the beer, and walked off without their noticing him. Would have stolen everything that wasn't nailed down and done so without ever being seen. Others, more practical, but with less professional pride, would perhaps have stuck a dagger into each of them before they observed it. So either you are a first-class and legendary burglar, you are this swashbuckling rogue, or you are effectively 
an assassin? Is that the duality that we're observing here? Is there any sense in which Bilbo would have would have described his own burglarious nature in those terms? Well, perhaps not. Certainly in the second paragraph, we see he had read of a good many things he had never seen or done. He was very much alarmed as well as disgusted. Disgusted is an interesting word there. Because we must ask, in what or by what is Bilbo disgusted? Is it simply the appearance of the trolls? Well, possibly. Though we were introduced to them in a fairly domestic and comfortable and welcoming way, it seems unlikely that Bilbo's experience, at least again, narratively speaking, the Bilbo within the fictional frame of the story that is being told by Bilbo, I guess I'm saying, um, that that Bilbo should be disgusted simply by their appearance. Is he disgusted at the thought of killing them? That, to me at least, seems like a more accurate interpretation. <laughs> we can, uh, yes, uh, Chesley Smith here in the YouTube chat, nothing is true, everything is permitted. That sounds to me like the creed of an assassin. Um, <laughs> I wonder about Bilbo's connection to the idea or, of, of burglary here. I wonder about his dedication to his burglarious reputation. Because in this moment, he is transitioning. We have just had that moment where now it is time for our burglar, by which they meant Bilbo. We're transitioning from that to Bilbo's actual first burglarious act, that he is going forth into the world, not just to reconnoiter, though certainly that too, but also potentially to steal. He is loath to turn back without some evidence of his accomplishment, without some sign that he is what he has been claimed to be. Of course, he didn't present himself as a burglar in the first instance. Gandalf did that. But Bilbo has now connected with that identity. Did back in Bag End, in fact, when, uh, when he was accused of looking more like a grocer than a burglar. Well, no. This is Bilbo's opportunity to prove himself, and that matters to him. He is not quite so Baggins-ish that he can simply return to Thorin and company with no proof of his endeavor. Mm. Oh, uh, Psyops Esmeralda on Twitter says, I always read it as Bilbo disgusted with himself because he can't perform on either of these levels. That is also, yes, I think a completely... Yes, that is also a completely valid interpretation, and one that is served, I think, by the semicolon at the end of that, that parenthetical thought. He was very much alarmed as well as disgusted, semicolon. He wished himself a hundred miles away, and yet, and yet, somehow, he could not go straight back to Thorin and company empty-handed. Yes, you might well see the, the conjunction of those two thoughts as evidence that Bilbo is disgusted in his own inability to do what must be done, or to do what perhaps he, he believes must be done. That's a really great thought. Yes, good. Nikki B in the YouTube chat says Bilbo has his pride too. Yes. And Sabine says, again, Baggins and Took. Took Robin Hood adventures, but Bilbo never did those things himself. He is well-read, but does not know how to apply his theory to practice. Yes, I certainly think there's something there too. Yeah. Caught between those two worlds. Um, okay, because I am running so long, I'm going to skip over the troll purse. I have a slide here dedicated to, to Bilbo's discovery of the troll purse, which is a really strange detail. 
Um, in case you missed it, and it is entirely possible to miss it, even if you are reading these passages fairly carefully, it is entirely possible to miss the fact that William the Troll possesses a talking purse. This is a completely unprecedented thing in The Hobbit and ultimately will be completely unprecedented in The Lord of the Rings too. There is no magical artifact that I can think of in, in all of Tolkien's Legendarium, particularly in these two novels, which behaves the way that a magic talking purse behaves. This for me is one of the biggest indicators that this scene has been reframed by Bilbo. And it's not just that the purse talks. It's not just that that this is a weirdly magical artifact uh, present in, in an otherwise completely incidental scene. It's that the magic purse disappears outright after the trolls have been turned to stone. Now, it is possible that even the trolls' clothing and possessions somehow are turned into stone too, but, I mean, we know that doesn't happen at least to the key that Bilbo uses to uncover the, the troll's cache of, of treasures. But it's possible that the bag is transformed to stone. It seems unlikely that that is true. The bag simply disappears from the narrative. This feels like one of the more outright fairy tale elements that we will encounter at all in the pages of The Hobbit. Yeah. Oh! Emmy asks here, does Tolkien consistently look down on killing unnecessarily, thinking of Gandalf talking to Frodo about killing Gollum? Yes, yes. Um, mercy is mercy is the act of, of a great person, a great heart. It is not necessarily that killing is bad. We will see a great many creatures and, and, and characters die in the course of the Lord of the Rings, but death, that killing is possibly at least a contravention of one's own greater purpose, that to take a life is a great and terrible thing. Yeah, good. Yes, Derek says, doesn't it say thankfully that the key wasn't on the troll? Yes, the key had fallen to the floor, so I guess if there is a, a continuity of contact between the troll and the troll's possessions, then possibly everything there gets turned to stone. I'm not quite sure what the magical impulse behind that would be, but yeah, yeah. Good. Yes. All right. Let's keep moving forward. Yes, Kate confirms on Twitter, the key fell out of his pocket, Bilbo found it on the ground. Yes, he did. But but there's no magical idea that, that anything that is possessed by the trolls somehow turns to stone. The purse is a mystery. The talking purse is a mystery. I, I don't quite understand how that works. Um, we can perhaps delve into that over on the forum at forum.storywonk.com, where you can now find discussion spaces for all of the There and Back Again sessions. Just scroll down to the bottom under classes and seminars, and you will find there spaces where we can talk about each of these sessions and each of these readings. Let's take a look then at the final reckoning with the trolls. I have still um, still a couple of, of slides to get to. Um so we know as, as the situation is looking dire, as, as things are getting worse and worse and worse, Gandalf intercedes remotely, not through an act of magic, but through an act of ventriloquism that distracts and confounds the trolls so that they bicker and argue amongst themselves and are then ultimately caught. Dawn take you all and be stoned to you! said a voice that sounded like William's. But it wasn't. For just at that moment, the light came over the hill and there was a mighty twitter in the branches. William never spoke, 
for he stood turned to stone as he stooped, and Bert and Tom were stuck like rocks as they looked at him. And there they stand to this day, all alone, unless the birds perch on them, for trolls, as you probably know, must be underground before dawn, or they go back to the stuff of the mountains they are made of and never move again. That is what happened to Bert and Tom and William. Excellent, said Gandalf, as he stepped from behind a tree and helped Bilbo to climb down out of a thorn bush. Then Bilbo understood. It was the wizard's voice that had kept the trolls bickering and quarreling until the light came and made an end of them. Gandalf does not defeat the trolls through magic. He does not split in twain the stone and allow the sun to pour through. He does not demonstrate, it may be argued, any magical power at all. It is possible that his ventriloquism is magically augmented, but it's also possible that Gandalf is just a really good mimic. And this isn't just a trivial observation. This isn't just the keeping clean of Gandalf's hands. There is something much more important. Here we are given one of the most foundational elements of Tolkien's entire mythology, and this is something that we are going to continue to track again and again and again as we move through The Hobbit and as we move through The Lord of the Rings, and it is simply this. Gandalf exploits the quarrelsome and contentious nature of the trolls to distract them until the sun comes up. Thus, Evil is defeated not by the exercise of a greater power for good, but rather by its own flaws and weakness. Evil destroys evil. This is as important a theme as we are likely to discover in The Hobbit or in The Lord of the Rings, that that evil is always self-destructive. Because the things that make you evil, the things that make you do evil deeds are beyond your conscious control. You cannot specifically apply evil to your enemies. Once you are evil, you are evil, and you will be destroyed by that, ultimately. And here we get what is a really deft and beautiful examination of that. This is one of the ways in which Tolkien's work surprises in its subtlety, that it maintains a a thematic and, and a philosophical depth, even in these fairly trivial and superficial moments, it maintains a depth that rewards a careful analysis and reading. There is no real reason why Gandalf couldn't have stepped to the top of the rise, slammed his staff upon the ground, and and brought forth an artificial illumination that would have, have, have frozen the trolls where they stood. But he doesn't. Instead, he exploits that self-destructive impulse that all evil creatures have. Ultimately, the trolls are destroyed, not by Gandalf, or even necessarily by the sun, but because they are quarrelsome, because they cannot work together. They are distrusting. And that's common to all evil creatures in the works of Hobbit. In the works of Hobbit, excuse me, in the works of Tolkien. This is what happens when I glance aside to my notes. Um, Yes, good. Yes. Oh, as Danielle says, evil exists, but even evil can be beaten by cleverness. Yes. Yes, and Chesley says, Gandalf is not only powerful, but also clever. Yes. Good. Mm. Cedar Heights says, Gandalf is viewed as an entertainer at the beginning of the book. He entertains with fireworks. This is Bilbo seeing Gandalf being less than he actually is. It is how the children would view him. 
that's a fascinating thought, isn't it? That in the practice of his art, Gandalf does present himself in more avuncular terms, perhaps, though maybe that's not quite the word that I'm looking for. Um, that, that he presents himself as, as less a great power and more an entertainer. I think you're right. Gandalf certainly wields the power of narrative by tricking the trolls into arguing among themselves. He is basically exploiting their story, their sense of themselves and each other, their, their community in that way. So that's, yeah, a good, good observation. Um, excellent. Okay, let's keep going. Um, because now we're going to transition. Now that the, um, now that the trolls have been dealt with, now that the immediate peril has all but passed, we're going to be introduced to another of those primary themes that we're going to continue to return to throughout the book. This one we've glimpsed already. I discussed this a little right at the beginning of, of this week's session because we're going to return to the notion of luck. And we're going to begin with, um, <laughs> with Bilbo discovering the key here. Let me share this slide. They searched about and soon found the marks of trolls' stony boots going away through the trees. They followed the tracks up the hill until, hidden by bushes, they came on a big door of stone leading to a cave. But they could not open it, not though they all pushed while Gandalf tried various incantations. Would this be any good? asked Bilbo when they were getting tired and angry. I found it on the ground where the trolls had their fight. He held out a largish a large key, excuse me, though no doubt William had thought it very small and secret. It must have fallen out of his pocket very luckily before he was turned to stone. I guess the implication there is, in fact, that everything that is touching the troll does, in fact, turn to stone. Now I feel really bad for the magic purse. If that was some kind of sentient creature, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Oh, interesting. Um, hmm. We can circle back around to this question, I think, perhaps at the end, or, or perhaps even over on the forum. Librarian Val has asked here, why do they need Gandalf to rescue them? Why, couldn't, why can't the dwarves or Bilbo have some agency here? That is a really interesting question. I think that there are a number of potential answers to that question. I think the key to understanding that may be our realization that Gandalf has not overcome the trolls, but has instead subverted their baser and more self-destructive instincts, that there may be something to that idea that Gandalf has demonstrated leadership and intelligence and subtlety in a way that the dwarves and Bilbo are incapable of doing, possibly. But yeah, maybe we'll take that to the forum and, and, and have that discussion there. Um, so I wanted to highlight this uh, briefly, just to note how incredibly lucky Bilbo is, even from the beginning of this discussion. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll look at the back half of this scene. For inside the, the troll's cache, we find this. There were lots of clothes, too, hanging on the walls, too small for trolls. I'm afraid they belonged to victims. And among them were several swords of various makes, shapes, and sizes. Two caught their eyes particularly because of their beautiful scabbards and jeweled hilts. Gandalf and Thorin each took one of these, and Bilbo took a knife in a leather sheath, it would have made only a tiny pocket knife for a troll, but it was as good as a short sword for the hobbit. These look like good blades, said the wizard, half drawing them and looking at them curiously. They were not made by any troll, nor by any smith among men in these parts and days. But when we can read the runes on them, we shall know more about them. 
we will revisit the question of these blades in next week's reading. But it's no great spoiler, I think, to note that they have happened upon an entirely necessary cache of weapons and supplies. They needed these weapons in order to continue on with their adventure. They needed some kind of, of, of comfort and restoration. And luckily, it has been provided for them. We might consider the encounter with the trolls, and in particular, the alighting of the sun upon the trolls as the first clean act of eucatastrophe, the first clean instance of eucatastrophe that we will see in the book that in this moment all seems lost and then there is an intercession of grace. Now, it's a little more complicated because Gandalf is the one who intercedes here, though Gandalf, as we've noted, delays and, and, and distracts the trolls rather than defeating them outright. It's a little, a little muddied, but we may certainly make the case that this is, is an act, a moment, an, an event of, of eucatastrophic proportion and, and quality. Um, yes, Anne asks here in the YouTube chat, is Gandalf the agent of eucatastrophe? This is leading off of a question from Emmy, who says, uh, it's still pretty coincidental, pretty coincidental that he learned of them and arrived just in time to save them. Yes, that's fair. That's, that's a, a very fair point. Gandalf could be acting in the interests of eucatastrophe here. And when we get to later instances of eucatastrophe, there will be agents who are, are acting on behalf of that eucatastrophic impulse, that eucatastrophic intrusion. There will be actors within those scenes who are apparently fulfilling that eucatastrophic impulse without necessarily being completely aware of its implications by themselves. Of course, at the end of Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, we will get the famous moment of the eagles are coming. You know, we will get the descent of the eagles to rescue the dwarves from the fir trees, uh, from the pine trees. And we will, in that moment, see the eagles, I think, as manifestations or as agents of that eucatastrophic impulse. So it is entirely possible that in this instance, Gandalf is doing it too. It's a little, a little muddy there, but yes, certainly. Okay. Um, yes, I guess we can circle back around to talk about the blades next week. Um, once we get the, the transcription of the runes, the translation of the runes inscribed upon these mythic elven blades from, from literally thousands of years in the past, the good fortune that Bilbo and company have experienced is, is, is becoming more notable as we move on. Um, yes, I'm afraid I'm a little over time. So let's uh, put up this final slide right here to note that next week we are looking at two chapters. We're going to look at chapters three and four, A Short Rest and Overhill and Underhill. Chapter three is an exceptionally short chapter. Chapter four is a medium length chapter. That combined reading of chapters three and four will be a little longer than this week's reading, but still shorter than the first week's reading for chapter one. So, uh, that shouldn't be too much work to deal with. That will take place in our usual slot, 9 p.m. Eastern. That's on Thursday evening, February the 2nd, 2017. I hope you will be able to join me for that. If you have thoughts, you can get in touch with me throughout the week, pretty much at any point. You can find me on Twitter, at PaperBullets. You can just tweet using the hashtag BackAgain, and I will see it. You can head on over to the StoryWonk forum at forum.storywonk.com. You can email me directly, alistair at storywonk.com. That's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R at storywonk.com. Or if you are a Patreon supporter, you can come hang out in the Discord chat. Just sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash storywonk.com. 
Storywonk. And of course, pledging your support at patreon.com slash storywonk doesn't just get you access to the Discord server. It also gets you access to a ton of extra shows, extra content, extra material, including the reading that I did last week of the entire first chapter of The Hobbit. So if you would like to hear that, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash storywonk. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash storywonk. Pledge your support and help me do even more here at Storywonk. I have big plans, some of which I recently announced. I have big plans and I would like to do all of them and I can only do that with your generous support. A dollar a month is all it takes to help make this stuff happen. Guys, thank you all so much for your time this Sunday afternoon. I will talk to you all on Thursday evening. Until then, take care. Take care.